ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 109, Pope John VIII, the real Pope John VIII, not the Pope Joan John VIII. Goodness. <laughs> I know, it keeps coming back. But we're here, we're at the real one, and he needs a nickname. He sure does. You have your book ready, Fry? Yeah, I do, because you told me ahead of time, and then I wandered around for like five minutes. Just we got confused, Travolta in my, my office. Look, I gave you an opportunity to just be like, yes, I have it right here. And you're like, no, I'm going to out myself as not being prepared. But I got it now. So I have rolled a 19 and a 10. Oh, Okay. He is the Mad Hook. The Mad Hook? I like that. You know what? Actually, they they end up being quite stunningly appropriate at times because I feel like, you know, Mad Hook definitely evokes Captain Hook and pirate sort of imagery for me. And that is so on par for this Pope. So we're going to see how Pope Mad Hook plays into all of that. Oh, it works on so many levels. (laughs) Anyways, let me share that with you now so I'm not just sitting here reminiscing for myself. You know, just staring like, ah, what a good role. (laughs) Such a good role. All of the things that happen with this Pope, he is definitely very mad. There is definitely some pirate stuff for the hook. All right. And just a note before we get started. Pope Mad Hook, Pope John VIII, has one of these papacies where literally everything is happening at once. So we're going to cover it topic by topic. Otherwise, it's going to get way too messy. But I want you to remember that literally everything we're talking about is happening concurrently. So it's a time. All right. So we're going to start with what? We're we going to start with him being born, because <laughs> that's how uh, we do. Being born. To start with, yes, because he was born in Rome, and his father's name was Gundis, and he was likely from an aristocratic background, because that is the norm right now. Unfortunately, we don't know much about his early life, because we no longer have the Liber Pontificalis as a source. But we do know that he was serving as an archdeacon in the Roman church by 853 because his name appears signed on a Roman council of that year. And we also know that this is the role he was still serving in, not a cardinal priesthood, in 872 when Pope Hadrian II died and he was elected to be the next pope on December 14th. Without that liberal pontificalis, we're just rushing right through. However, we also know that when John was elected, it was not unanimous. Right from the outset of his election, John was going to have some notable and influential detractors, namely the Bishop of Porto, Formosus. Ah, Formosus is here again, also still alive. Yeah, he's going to pop up from now until forever. Like, if I tried to search episodes by the name Formosus, there would be so many, because he's just, he's just with us now. 
with us in spirit and also more spirit. Currently in body, uh, later in spirit, and later still in legacy. Or so. (laughs) But anyways, he does not like Pope John. And why he resisted Pope John's election is unclear. But the most common suggestion is that he wanted to be Pope and had some support that could have made him Pope, which would make sense because we do know that later he does become Pope. But this isn't entirely certain, and there might have been other motivations because Formosus is going to continue to resist John and plot against John throughout the whole of his papacy. So we will cover that as we go. But the thing is, Formosus was not going to be the only threat in John's papacy, because there are going to be a lot of threats on John's papacy, and they waste no time in popping up. It's like, hey, you're Pope now, here's all the danger. And that's exactly how it's going to go. Right away, the most imminent and major of these threats that shapes the whole of John's papacy is one we've been alluding to for quite a while. Muslim incursions into Italy. They're coming. They are coming. And at this time, it has also significantly ramped up. So by the time that we are talking about now John's early life, Sicily and Crete had been under Muslim control for nearly 50 years. And just a few years prior to John becoming Pope, both Syracuse and Malta had been captured as well. So at this point, almost the entire coastline is a threat, which leads to these sort of active, quickfire Saracen pirate invasions nearly everywhere. But significantly more concerning than just quickfire pirates, there's pirates here. <laughs> there are pirates here. Pope Madhook is going to have to deal with so many pirates. What a wild thing to have to deal with. Oh, and he deals with it, let me tell you. And Rome's not really on the ocean. (laughs) Well, they have a port in Ostia, right? So there is, there is travel that you can, you can uh, get to Rome. Uh, Yeah, we went over this when we, when we were playing um, Kidnap the Pope. (laughs) Kidnap the Pope. When um, Totalis Rankium boys were like, oh, that's not right there, though. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, fine, we'll I spend guess a we're day. Improvising, improvising a day's travel as you wander. Uh, and that went so well, as we know. But he doesn't just have to deal with pirates on the coast, because significantly more concerning than that, in the last few decades, the raids in southern Italy had led to established Saracen colonies and points of defense in Campania, Calabria, and the Sabine Hills, So by the time that John is assuming the papacy, Muslim expansion dotted the whole bottom half of Italy's boot. They have, like, little stronghold pockets that they now possess. Not good. Coastline's a problem. The whole bottom half of Italy is a problem. And to make matters worse, southern Italy had a long-standing tradition of squabbling petty princes who in their various power plays against one another 
had created multiple alliances with the Muslims when it suited them. Brie, are you telling me that Guidos have existed for centuries? Guidos have existed for centuries, and they are making these alliances to fight each other, and in the process, they've just made the Muslims a lot more comfortable in the south of Italy. That just sounds like the most Guido thing ever. I'm gonna fight you, bro. It's such a Guido thing. It really, really is. And they are being total dicks about it. And this is only encouraging the Saracens who are like, hey, we've got all this extra land. That makes us a lot closer to getting back to Rome. And as Horace K. Mann puts it, they were prepared to, quote, destroy the city of the old dotard Peter. Oh. Yeah. Remember that whole Gajwa thing where they would go in and just, like, raid and cause a huge psychological impact and then leave? Yeah. And then leave. Yeah, so they're getting really excited about how close they are and can do that again. And this serves the southern Italian powers of the Guidos just fine, because in many cases, they're not super happy about the Pope having as much influence as he does, or as much land as he does with the Papal States. So they're like, yeah, okay, you helped me fight that guy. I don't really care what you do in terms of Rome. So this is not good at all. Pope John is justifiably concerned as the Muslim presence in Italy grew stronger and closer to his doorstep. He had almost certainly been a young man during the Muslim sack of Rome in 846, and he understood just how critical having adequate defenses would be. So what do you do as Pope when you need to have some adequate defenses at this point? Who do we go to? Is it still the Franks? It's still a Frankie boy. He is looking at Emperor Louis II for protection. We're looking at the hot dogs and not the wheat products. <laughs> We're not looking at the Bulgars. No, they don't they don't, <laughs> don't give us any protection. And to be fair, Louis II was very active in resisting and pushing back the Saracen advances as we see with his own success in the Siege of Salerno in 872. So, like, great, good start. This is who we want to turn to. So, to bolster that relationship and ensure support, John continued his predecessor's support for the emperor's claims over territory in Francia, that whole Lotharingia situation that they were fighting about, Lothar and Lothar town. And so this is looking good. He's like, great, okay, Louis II is doing a great job of fighting off these Saracens. I'm going to support him. He'll want to help me out. This is all great. And then Louis II dies in 875 before he could send any practical support for Rome. It just sent a letter that says, I'm dead. I'm dead. Yep, sorry. No soldiers. I'm dead. (laughs) No soldiers. I'm dead. (laughs) And now this creates somewhat of a crisis point. Because the emperor is dead, the Muslims are still coming, Louis has no male heir, only a daughter, Ermengarde. Ermengarde. And as we know, the Carolingians are always prepared to fight each other for a power grab. So we now have both Charles the Bald and Louis the German feeling like it's their time to inherit the imperial title. How old are they? 
Uh, they've been around for a long time. They're not, they're, they're kind of. They're no at. spring chickens here. Correct. Yes, they are definitely on their way out, as we'll see. And at this point, they both think, okay, the Imperial title's up for grabs. It's, it's my time to shine. But the Italian nobles are somewhat ambivalent over which one to support. It really, they, they don't care. And it is important to point out that this also represents a shift in how the emperor will come to be that absolutely enhances the role of the pope in the process and makes the pope's support critical. This is the moment in which we see the pope starting to choose the emperor. Mm. Up until now, we've had emperors who while crowned and consecrated by the Pope to legitimize their ruling authority, there was still a direct succession, right? We had Charlemagne was succeeded by his son, Louis the Pious. Louis was succeeded by his son, Lothair. Lothair succeeded by his son, Louis II. We don't have a son now. There isn't a succession. So what the Pope decides is now going to have more weight than ever. Like, this is happening now for real. He is quite literally choosing. So Pope John, Pope Madhook, decides to support Charles the Bald to succeed as emperor. Remember, this is the one Louis the Pious really favored and kept wanting to give land to and causing all those problems? Yes. He's chosen that one. I have picked you. I will pick you. So he sends a delegation, ironically including Formosus, to a summit of the nobles at Pavia to express his support and Charles jumps on the opportunity and heads for Rome. Now, the annals of Fulda sort of scathingly suggest that Charles paid the Pope for the imperial title, but historians sort of discount this as extremely unlikely. Now, upon hearing that the Pope favored Charles and was about to make Charles the bald emperor, Louis the German is incredibly annoyed. And his two sons... Charles the Fat and Carloman of Bavaria. The Fat and the Bald. That's like a terrible, bold, and the beautiful spinoff. <laughs> it feels appropriate, doesn't it? We have Louis the German's two sons, Charles the Fat and Carloman of Bavaria. They enter North Italy in a show of force, but since Charles the Bald was already on the way to go and be crowned, he's already gotten the jump on everything, and he's able to repel them. So Charles the Bald arrives in Rome and was consecrated as the new Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day, 875. Christmas again. Yep, exactly 75 years after Charlemagne had been crowned as the first Holy Roman Emperor. Same day, Christmas Day. What a terrible present for Jesus. An emperor? I don't know. That feels like a good present. If I got an emperor for my birthday, I'd be mad. <laughs> You'd be like, what am I going to do with this? Let alone a Frankish emperor. <laughs> These are the worst type of emperors for you, aren't they? But I, I keep thinking, oh, Fry really hates these Frankish emperors. Wait till we get to the German emperors. She's not going to like them any better. <laughs> so mm, They're just hot dogs, but slightly adjacent. They're the worst. Oh my god, I hate... They are the worst with a U. With a U. <laughs> god Okay, damn I'm it. proud of that one. <laughs> god damn it, Brie. 
You set me up. I had to. <laughs> I did. Adjacent to hot dogs is sausage, I suppose. So Charles the Bald, our new emperor, is very receptive to building that mutually beneficial relationship with the Pope, and also seemed very committed to his position as protector of the church. He issues an edict that stated, quote, as the Roman church is head of all the churches, it must be honored and revered by all. Its rights must not be molested so that it may be able to extend its pastoral care to the universal church. And then he instructs his most trusted Lombard dukes to be of assistance to the Pope. Ironically, his most trusted Lombard dukes was none other than Lambert of Spoleto, the duke who had previously raided Rome in our last episode, and uh, his brother Guy or Guy. Lambert and Guy. Yeah. Uh, that's also some sort of sitcom right there. <laughs> Lambert and, Lambert and Guy. Yeah, yeah. And um, maybe these two, I, would it be a sitcom or would it be like a true crime or I one of those know. sort of the I feel like it shows? would be definitely more like a what we do in the shadows failed sacks of cities sort of thing. Like they're just himbos who cannot. You've absolutely nailed it on the head. <laughs> oh, God. It's so perfect. Okay. I want somebody to make some kind of What We Do in the Shadows poster with, like, Lambert and Guy. <laughs> and it is about failed sacks on cities, but oh, we'll get there. <laughs> so he has now just said, hey, you guys need to be assisting the Pope. And this is kind of awkward because Lambert just raided Rome. And to make things even a little bit more awkward, Charles decided to donate part of Lambert's duchy of Spoleto to the Pope to expand the Papal States. So this is a really weird dynamic. You might remember in our last episode, Lambert had been deposed as Duke after the raid on Rome. So Charles reinstated him, but halved his duchy and said, the rest goes to the Pope and now you need to serve him. There's that. He still manages to be one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful Duke in Italy and his brother. So... Unfortunately, this amounted to very little in terms of practical help that the Pope so sorely needed for defending Rome against the Saracens. This is not for lack of trying on Charles's part, because he does cross the Alps with a military force to come and assist the Pope, but literally immediately after he departed, Louis the German, who's still mad, does as the Carolingians do and attacks Charles' territory that he's just left which forces Charles to turn around and defend his kingdom and leave the Pope undefended. What? Yeah, he's like, hey, oh, he left. Let's just go in and swoop in and take it while he's gone. And so the Charles has to go back around. He can't help the Pope. Charles even tried to take some of Louis's territory in retaliation, which failed spectacularly, and delayed his return to come and help the Pope even more. This is not great. Louis the German is, is going to be an obstacle. He is preventing Charles from defending the Pope. But then Louis the German dies in August of 876, and Charles once again set out to bring his forces to Rome. I've got to come and help the Pope with these damn Saracens. However, he now found that his nobles were significantly less inclined to join him or to send men. 
Even his most important nobles, like his representative for Italy, Count Bozo of Lombardy, refused to join the expedition. So nevertheless, Charles persisted, right? So he's like, okay, fine. I don't care whether you're coming with me or not. I still have to defend the Pope. I will do that. Then, as soon as he leaves to do that, he finds out that Carloman, the son of Louis the German, was doing the same thing that his father had, attacking the land he'd just left. And once again, Charles has to go back. Crap, I have to go and defend my kingdom. I can't go and help the Pope. Unfortunately, he then died on the way back at Mount Sinus in October 877. So again, no help for the Pope. How many now? Is that two or three people who have not come? That's two now that haven't come. They've, they've died and they haven't been able to help. The Pope cements this relationship. Everything's looking good. And then they just can't help and then die. So by now, the Pope was facing an imminent attack. And once again, there was no emperor at all to send protection. And I do mean no emperor at all, because in a flail of desperation, the Pope had also even written to the Byzantine emperor for help, but received the same thing that the Pope always receives from the Byzantines, which is nothing. When does he become a pirate? Uh, just about now. So at this point, he is hooped. He has no defenses. Nothing is going to happen. So to keep them out of Rome, Pope John was forced to pay the Muslims a humiliating annual tribute, which apparently there is an image of. So I have an image for you to look at of the Pope. Oh, what makes it humiliating? Well, he has to literally pay the Muslims to stay out of his city. So he's not defended. He's literally paying them to leave him alone. I see he's got a sack of something on the ground there. Money. It's not a very large sack of money. It's not, but he, it's still humiliating. He is not like literally having to be like, I will pay you to go away because I can't fight you. That's not even like a briefcase of money. That is just literal gold, Fry. Fine. It's just, it's not a very big sack, is all I'm saying. However, John is not about to make this payment lying down. Nor did he want to have to continue making it. Because the thing we know about paying an army to go away is that it's very temporary and they will come back for more money. They'll be like, it's time for your monthly pay me to go away tax. Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly it's a weekly pay me to go away tax and, and so on. So he realizes he is going to have to handle the defense of Rome himself. And he absolutely rose to the occasion. He essentially becomes the general of Rome, like Pope Gregory the Great. So John had already undertaken a significant refortification of the walls of Rome, and now extended this in ordering new defenses to be built around St. Paul's outside the walls and its surrounding monasteries and settlements, because, you know, they're outside the walls. And these defenses were significant improvements. Enough that they became known as Johannopolis, kind of like we saw with Leo IV, and the Leonine city and Leopolis at Civitavecchia. And since a majority of attacks still came from the coastline, Pope John, Pope Madhook, 
founded a papal fleet commissioning warships that then patrolled the coastlines and actively engaged Muslim pirates, once even overtaking and capturing 18 of the Muslim ships at Cersei. Ooh, fun. So he has literally created a whole navy. He's now fighting pirates. He also established the productions of weapons and munitions, and also had a mind to establish a cavalry division, although it kind of seems that in the timeline, the horses he really wanted for this never made it to him. But that's not all. Like, this went a long way for boots-on-the-ground defenses, but John also had to attend to the larger problem of these Christian-Muslim alliances in the South that were making all of these attacks possible. The Guidos. They gotta stop inviting the Saracens in. They gotta knock it off. They do. So John wrote to the princes, denouncing any that would ally with the Saracens as wicked Christians, advising them to, quote, put their trust in God and not the Sultan, or in Satan, as he might be more suitably styled. Yeah, no, okay, that's what I thought you said, and then my brain did not, it... It saw the little, the little, the little guy from Aladdin and then <laughs> yeah. put horns on him in a tail. And I was like, I don't know what's happening here. That's not the one who's the devil. That's Jafar. And then just could not trip over that. <laughs> You're evoking exactly the kind of mental picture that Pope John VIII wants you to have. And he. He calls on them, all of these southern petty princes, to come together and form an alliance to drive out the Muslims from all of Italy. So then, accompanied by Lambert and Guy, his imperially appointed bodyguards, Pope John personally headed south to Campania in 877 for a congress at Trieto, which is modern-day Miterno. I don't trust these himbos. Well, he has to go and deal with the himbos. They're being dumb. Well, he's got himbos. He's got Lambert and Guy. And he's got to go deal with all of these guidos. And I just... Yeah. I don't think this is going to go well for him. Well, are you ready for our our guidos here? Because I have a list of the southern princes who were at this this congress. How guido-y are their names? Okay, so here they are. We have... Athanasius of Naples, Landolf of Capua, Guayfer of Salerno, and Pulchar of Amalfi. Those are our petty princes. I'd watch a Jersey Shore type show with these bastards on it. A hundred percent. So at the Congress, Pope John compelled the princes to break their alliances with the Saracens with some convenient payment to make the transition easier. Why are we paying everybody? He's just like, hey, you might lose out on a little bit of money for breaking these alliances, so I'm going to just smooth that over, get back on the winning side, right? And he also arranges for the Amalfi forces to lend their aid to patrol the coastline. Is there also a picture of him looking very disappointed paying off some guidos? There isn't, but there should be. We could just take this one and put, like... A whole bunch of spray tan on it? A whole bunch of spray tan and some uh, some wife beaters. We got this. We can GTL those guys and it'll just be fine. <laughs> oh. 
So he paid the Amalfi forces 10,000 mancuses. And unfortunately, the What's Amalfi... What's a mancuse? And how much in American money is that? How much is a mancuse? Uh, it's like a gold coin. So yeah, he paid him 10,000 gold coins. And unfortunately, the Amalfi are not going to make good on that arrangement, but that's kind of beside the point. Is that because they suck? Yeah, they suck. They are they are too busy Jim Tan laundering again. Jim Tan Muslim incursion. <laughs> That's what they should have been doing, but they weren't about that. So he then forbade any future rekindling of Muslim alliances or trade or negotiation on threat of excommunication and demanded a full and total hostility to the invaders until they were utterly and totally forced out of Italy. In his letters, he refers to the Saracens as wicked Muslims and the most devious people and the wicked people of the Hagarenes. And apparently Hagarenes comes from the biblical narrative of Hagar, the concubine of Abraham. Basically, he's like, you guys have to be as mean to these people as possible, hostile, aggressive, force him out. That's what he's about. That's rude. But it's important, right? He's got to protect Italy. He's got to protect his power. He's got to protect Rome. And right now, what these guys are doing, making these alliances because they're too busy fighting each other, is really causing him a headache. And unfortunately, this isn't going to be a super successful thing long term, particularly since the Southern powers had no desire to be entirely reliant on papal authority for their interests or to simply allow the Pope to make such decisions for them. But that would be in the future. So for the time of John's papacy, he does get an alliance and an agreement from the princes for the time being not to have alliances with Muslims to some degree increase their defenses. So the defense of Rome and the Papal States against the Saracen threat was something that John had to focus on and actively pursue and shape his policy on for the whole of his papacy. Like, this is happening the whole time. He's building a navy. He's building munitions. He's trying to create alliances to make this happen. Everything he is doing has this at the heart of it. And he will be personally involved in it right up to his death. So we have to consider this when considering everything else he does, and to credit him for throwing himself into it so thoroughly. This is his big thing. And that brings us back to the death of Charles the Bald, which once again left the Pope without an emperor to rely on, and a set of contenders who will fight one another for the title. So not only is this just a problem because he doesn't have any support for the Saracens, this is a problem because now there's all this instability across Francia. So once again, the Pope is looking to support a candidate who will provide the most support for Rome's defenses. And so at this time, his primary candidate was Count Bozo, Charles' regent and representative for Italy who was well-connected, well-established. Who lets that be a real name? Bozo? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a real name. Who said, ah, that combination of letters doesn't sound like a problem? 
Um, the Lombard regents of Italy, I suppose, because yeah, we we definitely have several bozos in the story right now. Why is this a popular name? It, it's a good name. It's got the oh, it's got that strong, you know, Latin male root. I don't know. It's it's just what they do. Bozo is a very powerful man at this point, so nobody is thinking to make fun of his name. He is the representative of the last emperor in Italy. He's got connections. He's powerful. He's already in Italy, so if the Pope wanted to support him to be emperor, there wasn't this whole cross the Alps challenge that keeps happening with all those emperors. So it's looking, it's looking good. Like, this is an ideal candidate. Unfortunately for Pope John, his favorite candidate simply had no interest in being emperor, like at all. He knows that he's all set up to be the king of Provence pretty soon. And that came with plenty of personal aggrandizement without the responsibility or the risk of being emperor. So he's like, nah, hard pass. However, Charles the Bald had sons. And Louis the German had sons who still felt very entitled to be considered to be emperor. So this was never going to be easy or clean cut. We're not going to get too bogged down into details and extra figures here because Battle Royale is a podcast that exists. But we're going to just do a summary. So we're not going to worry about Charles the Bald's sons. His eldest son, Louis the Stammerer, succeeded him as king of Aquitaine and later as king of West Francia, but not as emperor. And the others are relatively tangential. So, Charles the Bald Sons, out of the picture for now. But we do need to consider two of Louis the German sons, Carloman the Bavarian and Charles the Fat, the same ones who we had mentioned earlier. Of the two, in particular, it was Carloman who felt the most entitled to the imperial crown, but the Pope had no love for him. Carloman was the one who had attacked Emperor Charles's kingdom, which had delayed his support of the Pope and ultimately stopped him from coming since Charles had died on the way. So when Carloman's now making overtures and demanding that he be crowned as emperor, Pope John is like, mm, I don't really don't want to do that. So he prevaricates and delays because he has no actual intention of crowning Carloman. He's still holding out hope that Bozo is going to be his emperor. So he's like, nah, not about that. So Carloman did what Carloman does and invaded North Italy again to pressure the Pope. And more directly, Carloman instructed Lambert who, remember, at this point is the imperially appointed bodyguard to the Pope, Carloman says, hey, Lambert, go to Rome. Go do what you did before. Take over the city in a show of force. And it turns out that Lambert is a Carloman supporter, so this is what he does. Remember when you said failed sacks of cities? Yep, here we go. <laughs> here he is. He, he rocks up in Rome. He takes the city. He imprisons the Pope within the Leonine city and demands that he crown Carloman as Holy Roman Emperor. The irony is lost on no one here. So John refuses Lambert's demands and threatens to excommunicate him 
while Lambert is trying to muscle all of the Roman nobles into declaring for Carloman. Not happening. So eventually, after 30 days, Lambert is forced to retreat from the city. And the moment that he did, the Pope also left the city and went straight to Francia because he is furious and he wants to put an end to the whole thing and crown an emperor that isn't Carloman so that Rome can get some help. Clearly the defenses still need work if Lambert can just stomp on in for a bit. So here in Francia, he calls a council, the Second Council of Troy, 878, and there he condemns Carloman for his aggression, excommunicated Lambert and his supporters and several other notable figures that we'll get to in a minute. And then he tried to impress the imperial title upon Charles the Bald's eldest son, Louis the Stammerer. Louis does what? A stammer? What? Yeah, he has a stammer. Oh, this poor baby. Yeah, but don't worry. He is going to go and live his private life as king of Aquitaine. He doesn't want to deal with being emperor. So he's just like, no, I don't want to do that. So the Pope compromises, crowns him king instead and is still looking for an emperor and really, really, really doesn't want to make it Carloman. Okay, all right. He's been looking for an emperor for some time now. Yeah, he wants Bozo. Bozo says no. He doesn't want Carloman. Carloman's like, yes, give it to me. He decides maybe Louis is a good choice, and Louis's like, no. So the Pope then returns to Rome, escorted now by Count Bozo, since his once-appointed papal protector was the reason that he'd been under threat very recently. And once back in Rome, John made one last-ditch attempt to get Bozo to agree to be emperor. And he does this by publicly adopting Bozo and acknowledging him as his son. This is Bozo, my child. Yeah, son of the Pope now. Surely you want to add emperor to this. No, it doesn't work. And then when Bozo is elected as expected to be king in Provence just a few months later, he realizes, okay, this is forever. There goes Bozo. He's going to do his thing. John has to come to terms with the fact that his particular plan is just never going to be. So the Pope is left with just one available choice. Charles the Fat, the other son of Louis the German and brother of Carloman. And now this is going to be slightly easier because in the same year that the Pope is coming to this realization that Charles the Fat has to be his emperor, Carloman goes and has a stroke and as a result <gasps> is no longer a threat. Ah, uh, brought down by divine intervention or something, I don't know. Yeah, just severely, severely incapacitated as a result. Can't check high blood pressure in whatever year this is. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of the apoplectic... Divine intervention. So now, as soon as Charles the Fat is informed that he has the Pope's reluctant last choice support, he's like, yay, okay. He heads straight to Ravenna, where the Pope finally crowns a new emperor on February 12th of 881. He literally puts the crown on Charles the Fat's head and then says, hey, I need your help against the Saracens in the South. Oh, I was like, and then he died. 
Oh. No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but he needs help. And now he also needs help against Guy or Guy II of Spoleto, the son of Lambert, who's now attacking the Papal States as well, because he's mad about the excommunication of his dad. Did did he name his son Guy after his brother? Yeah. Okay. Because I was like, did I get that wrong? Was this his son his whole time? No. Okay. No. This That was guy one. This is guy two or gi. Because I know that it's, it, it is. And in fact, I will I will point out to you, based on what you said earlier, that it is in Italian, Guido. That is his name. Unfortunately for the Pope, aside from holding a Congress to create peace that definitely didn't hold, it turned out that Charles the Fat was going to be as useless as the rest and provided no practical support or protection to the Pope. So the other guys get to be useless in this front because they died, but Charles is just useless because he's useless. Instead, he goes to deal with other concerns like rebellious dukes. So again, at the bottom line, after all of this emperor searching, the Pope is without protection. He is still the only one defending Rome. And that's where we're going to leave that for now, because there are a lot of other things that he's involved with that we need to talk about. So we're going to shift gears here and go back to Moravia and the conversion efforts of the Slavs and the conversion efforts of the Slavs by Saints Cyril and Methodius. We covered this last week in Hadrian's episode. And we discussed how they had gained the Pope's permission to use the Slavonic language to create a liturgy to convert the people of Moravia, and that this had such success that it kept the Slavic converts with the Latin church and somewhat made up for the loss of the Bulgars. And you'll also remember that on their visit to Rome, Methodius had been made the Archbishop of Sirmium with license to establish a diocese in the territory, and Cyril had stayed in Rome and then died and was buried with honors in St. Peter's. We're now at the point where Methodius alone is returning to Moravia with the intent to preach the Slavonic liturgy that he has permission from the Pope to go do. However, when Methodius arrives in Moravia, he found himself in trouble with King Louis the German and his bishops who took significant issue with Methodius's new jurisdiction as archbishop. They claimed that his authority infringed upon the jurisdiction of the established bishops of Salzburg, Passau, and Frieshing, who had de facto held the Pannonian region since the conquering of the Avar tribes. So he shows up and he's like, yep, I'm ready to do this. And the bishops who are there are like, no, you're actually deposed and we're imprisoning you in a monastery under our supervision. So this does not go very well for him. Methodius was imprisoned for two and a half years before the Pope, who's now growing worried by the lack of contact, inquired the visiting Bishop of Friesing what he knew about Methodius and if Methodius had gone missing. He's like, hey, I haven't heard from my missionary. Do you know anything? After initially denying knowing anything about the whereabouts of Methodius, the bishop finally informed the Pope that Methodius was an intruder and had been deposed. And John is furious. He is the mad of the mad hook. 
So he immediately demands that Methodius be released and restored to the jurisdiction that the Pope had granted. Now, and put all of Bavaria under interdict, which is almost excommunication and forbids them from celebrating mass until Methodius was free. What is it almost excommunication? Like people can still sell stuff to them? They're not allowed to perform any sacraments. So like okay. if you happen to be a baby being born, there's no baptism, there's no mass, there's no Eucharist. So all those things that no save your soul. So all of those things that keep your soul saved and in good standing with, with the big guy upstairs. Nope, on hold. Get him back. Make him free. Put him back where he belongs. He also sends a legate to Moravia to remind King Louis the German of the universal jurisdiction of the Apostolic See to restore Methodius to his position. And for as long as he was deprived, he was to be restored before they could make any charges against him. So basically, you've imprisoned him for two and a half years. You cannot raise a single argument against him for two and a half years. And then if you want to make an issue, you have to come to Rome and explain your case if you have one, but not for two and a half years. So he's really mad. He, he yeah, needs he to is. write the situation. But in the time that the Bishop of Friesing was in Rome, he had made arguments to the Pope over the use of that Slavonic liturgy or the Slavonic language in the liturgy. So Methodius's release also came with an instruction from Pope John to stop using the Slavonic liturgy, hoping that if maybe Methodius will just use the Latin liturgy, this might calm some of the conflict that had gotten him in trouble in the first place and keep Louis the German on side because at this point, this is before Louis the German is dead, and he's trying to keep all of his options for support against the Saracens open. So Methodius is restored, and as soon as they were able, the bishops started to bring their cases against him. After that two and a half years, they're like, all right, okay, we can now fight with this guy. And some of the complaints were legitimate, like Methodius definitely had not stopped using the Slavonic liturgy. And there were also a lot of complaints that were like a little more spurious, like accusing him of omitting the filioque in the Nicene Creed. Ooh, you can't know. Those are important. It's very important, especially for the Latin church, but the likelihood of Methodius actually doing those things Unlikely. Mm-hmm. But either way, he's he's getting complaints now. So Pope John summons Methodius to Rome to answer for the charges. And Methodius is like, cool, great, I'm coming. Comes right away. And once there, not only did he acquit himself wholly of the complaints, totally innocent, he also convinces Pope John of the usefulness and the needfulness of that Slavonic in the Slavic conversion efforts. So he actually convinces the Pope that the Pope was wrong, and John undoes his own prohibition on its use and sends Methodius back to Moravia, fully cleared and with full permission to keep doing what he did. The only condition that he puts on this is that he wants the liturgies to first be read in Latin and then in Slavonic. In a letter, John said, quote, God who made three principal languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, 
made the others also for his honor and glory. He doesn't see this as a major problem. As long as the Latin is being honored, keep using the Slavonic. It's working. Convert people. Great. Let people understand you. John also continued to administrate the expanding Slavic church beyond Moravia when he received contact from the Duke Branimir of Croatia, pledging fealty to the Pope after the previous Duke Zetislav. I'm not going to get that right, so I'm going to go with Zetislav. He had had Byzantine loyalties. We now have a new Duke who's like, hey, I would like to be loyal to you, Pope. John receives him warmly celebrates the ruler at mass, and consecrates a new bishop for Croatia. Now, in terms of international efforts, John also communicated with the English church, encouraging the Mercian king Burid and the archbishop of Canterbury, Edred, when they were repeatedly beset by raids from the Danes and desperately wanted to seek peace. They're having a hard time. They need some nice words from the Pope. And the king, Bured, actually comes to Rome, but almost immediately died upon his arrival. So not super helpful. Why are these people just dropping dead? Stress, man. So much stress. Self-care, king. (laughs) Self-care. Look, he is being constantly raided by Danes, and now he's come all the way to Rome to get some help. And he gets there and he goes, ah, and dies. So, you know, stress. There is also an amusing anecdote that I have to include that Bishop Edred expressed concern to the Pope over the young King Alfred. Yes, this is Alfred the Great for all of those Rex Factor listeners, who, according to Edred, seemed to be unwise and disobedient. And so Pope John VIII assured him that he would urge the king to be more kingly and to consult with his bishops. He's going to grow on to be Alfred the Great. So, so maybe clearly, his uh, interaction helped move that along. Yeah, maybe maybe Pope John saying, hey, Alfred, be more kingly was, was important. <laughs> Probably not. So Pope John also officially ended the Photian Schism in Constantinople. Even though Photius had been deposed when Basil became emperor and Ignatius had been reinstated as patriarch. Remember, when Ignatius died in 877, Photius and the emperor had been reconciled, and he'd been recalled to serve as patriarch once more. So John, once again for the sake of defending Rome and winning any ally he could get, took a very conciliatory approach to the situation. Like, this is, this is now a whole new level of what's going on with Photius. We don't have a wrongly deposed patriarch to be concerned with. And even if Photius had been hastily and shoddily ordained, that was, like, so long ago now. It just doesn't need to be an issue anymore. Photius could bring about improved unity in the Eastern Church and return cohesion to the Eastern and Western churches together. So, hey, let's make peace. Maybe this will work out better for me and to my defense of Rome. If this encourages the Byzantines to send support to defend against the Saracen pirates, perfect. However, he did recognize that to just simply and wholly accept Photius as patriarch would be to undo and undermine the purpose of the papal resistance in the first place. 
which had more to do with the emperor presuming to appoint and depose patriarchs at his will. And so for that reason, if John was going to put this issue to bed and resolve the schism, he had to be smart about it. He had to do it in a way that at least attempted to preserve the intent of his predecessors. And so John recognized Photius as patriarch, but only under very specific conditions. Namely, that Photius had to make a formal and public apology for his previous actions at a synod, and that the ecclesiastical administration of the Bulgars be ceded to the apostolic see. He also required a commitment from the Eastern Church that any future patriarch must be chosen from clerics and not from lay people, even though that really should be a given. Yeah, I thought that was already a rule. It is a rule, but he's like looking for that confirmation. And he says, hey, so if you don't meet these terms, I'll just renew the condemnation of Photius as passed in the Fourth Council of Constantinople of 869, which you will remember is the first Fourth Council. Now, Photius seemed relatively willing to accommodate the Pope's conditions. And this led to that whole confusing situation that I was talking about before with the second Fourth Council of Constantinople, 879, essentially undoing the condemnation of Photius that had been passed in the first Fourth Council of Constantinople, 869, so that he could just justifiably take up his previous role. Great, let's just leave it as that, you know, everybody's reconciled, except that this was not a popular decision. And Pope John was criticized for recognizing Photius and undermining the positions of Pope Nicholas and Hadrian II. And unfortunately, after he resumed his patriarchy, Photius wasn't in a hurry to make good on those promises he'd just made to the Pope, particularly over transferring authority of the Bulgars over to the Pope. He's like, nah, I think we'll keep him. And to be fair, it wasn't that simple since the Bulgar king Boris hadn't even been consulted about this when they just agreed to transfer him over. He hadn't been consulted. He hadn't consented. He wouldn't have consented. So the fact that it doesn't get done is sort of understandable. So the Pope sends a legate to Constantinople. This legate is Marinus. We're going to come back to Marinus in the future. To verify that his conditions with Photius had been met. And Photius is like, oh, well, no, they haven't been, but I don't want the Pope to know that. So they imprison the legate to delay any action from the Pope. Kind of like the Methodius situation. What he doesn't know can't hurt him. Let's just hold this off for a bit. But then in 881, when Marinus is released and makes his way back to inform the Pope that, hey, he isn't actually meeting your conditions, the Pope reconfirms the condemnation of Photius and the schism opens back up, but only for a couple of years, because very soon after, when Emperor Basil died in the craziest hunting accident you've ever heard in your life. You gotta tell me. You can't can't say that and then not tell me. Well, I'm gonna tell our listeners to listen to that Totalis Rankium episode because they spend a lot of time on it. (laughs) Basil II was dead in the craziest hunting accident ever and was succeeded by Leo VI, 
who wanted Photius out anyway, so deposes and exiled him with no repercussions from the West. So it does end the schism, but mainly because Photius is out. But now we're on to the last big thing about Pope John. Because remember, we mentioned at the start that Pope John was not universally accepted among the clergy and had powerful rivals who resisted his election and continued to cause problems for him throughout his papacy. And of course, the most known to us at this point is Formosus, although it would be more accurate to describe this as a collection of corrupt Roman nobles that Formosus is associated with. So this is a whole group of people that have close ties to Emperor Louis II and are very, very corrupt, but because of the close ties, nothing has been done about them at this point. We've repeatedly made inferences throughout the 9th century of the rising power and interference of the nobles within the Roman church and how that had massively increased corruption. But this is the first time we have reason to take a deeper look at what that actually looks like. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. No. So in this group, <laughs> well, I don't know if you are. It's going to get a little wild here for a minute. So in this group, we have Gregory the Primacerius, who is the guy who organizes and presides over papal elections, and his brother Stephen, the secondarius and master of soldiers. And these two men are notorious for embezzling and making themselves rich off the people of Rome. Then we have Stephen's son-in-law, George of the Aventine, who had murdered his brother to take his mistress, but then also married the niece of Pope Benedict III and then murdered her, but was able to bribe his way out of trouble. So he murdered his brother for his mistress, but also had a wife and then murdered his wife, but was able to bribe his way out of two murders. This guy's name is what? Not George Stephen. of the Aventine. It's George. <laughs> and then we have Sergius, who married the niece of Pope Nicholas and took advantage of Pope Nicholas dying to steal as much wealth as was available in the church. And we also have Constantina, who is a woman who scandalously married a second husband before her first husband died and then eloped with a third man. Is that everyone? Well, and Formosus. And Formosus. So let's, because George got away with murder, apply Seinfeld characters to all of them. <laughs> okay, so we have so we have George, we have Gregory and Stephen. They, I feel like they've, they've got to be like Newman and Kramer. And then we have Sergius. Took advantage of the dying Pope. Who could that be? I don't know. Constantina is definitely Elaine. <laughs> and then I guess we'll make Sergius putty. Because I don't know. <laughs> putty. That's the only other, like, recurring side character. gets to that's... be Jerry. Yes. <laughs> I wonder how that's going to color our episode on him. But, so, we now have... <laughs> oh no, I've made a mistake. <laughs> I don't know, I kind of am here for it. Some bad things are going to happen to Jerry. <laughs> Isn't that how the uh, the whole series ends? It does. It definitely does. I have never finished with... Seinfeld. You've never seen the final episode of Seinfeld? 
I have not. I'm pretty sure they went to prison. I remember my parents yes. being mad. Yeah, they they go to prison for an entire year. Amazing. Yeah. Because they suck. But anyway, <laughs> they do suck. They're terrible people. So this really works. And this is just like a sampling of the Roman nobility, right? It's not a great picture, but this is Formosus and his friends, and they're all profiting off their ties to the emperor, right? So our group of Seinfelds. But then when Louis died at the beginning of John's papacy, John wanted to crack down on their bad behavior. And when various complaints were made against this group, John summoned them to appear before him. And this is exactly like the end of Seinfeld. <laughs> and then they go to prison for a year. They go to prison, <laughs> all of the character witnesses. It's terrible. Um, they... They actually avoid the summons, though, and begin to plot against the Pope, who would hold them accountable, even going so far as to try and solicit an alliance with the Saracen pirates, hoping that they'll just kill the Pope conveniently. They are terrible people. They are the worst. They really are. Every plot that they hatch is undone or falls through, and so the summoned nobles left Rome after robbing the church for as much wealth and treasure that they could carry, right? So they're just like, crap, we can't get away with this. We're just going to rob the place and leave. So whether or not Formosus was involved in the robbery is unclear, but he realized that he was directly associated with these nobles and would be held equally accountable, even if he wasn't. And he knew that John already considered him a dangerous rival to the papacy, so he too fled to Francia. Now, another version of events suggests that Formosus was already in Francia as legate, and he was delivering the Pope's support to Charles the Bald at the time this all happened, and then just didn't come back. So we'll talk more about that in Formosus's episode. But either way, looks totally guilty. So... In response to the theft and flight of the nobles, Pope John held a synod at the Pantheon, where he condemned Formosus and his friends, and issued a threat of excommunication if they did not present themselves back in Rome for trial within three weeks. So this synod was held on April 19th, and the group had until May 9th to appear before they were totally excommunicated. They did not. And so they were excommunicated, and Formosus was deposed for desertion of his diocese. Now, like I said, Formosus and his friends went to Francia, hoping that their previous ties to the emperor might still hold some advantage to help the situation blow over. But unfortunately for them, this is the whole period that's overlapping with the struggle to appoint a new Holy Roman Emperor when Carloman sent the Lombard Duke Lambert to harass and harry Rome as retaliation for John's refusal to consecrate Carloman. So as we covered, John was really busy at this time and really mad at this time. So his first act when he's not imprisoned in the Leonine city is to head straight to France, where he has a synod and excommunicates and condemns Lambert and Carloman for coming against him but also excommunicates his troublesome rivals too. So they're excommunicated in this same Council of Troy, 876, including Formosus, who was excommunicated unless he signed a declaration that he would never come back to Rome. 
So in effect, he had the choice of excommunication or banishment. So going to Francia definitely didn't help it blow over for them. Then on December 16th of 882, Pope John VIII, Pope Badhook, was poisoned. What? And when the by yeah, what? Poison. Oh, by who? Formosus Jerry. <laughs> Jerry! And when the poison did not take effect quickly enough, he was clubbed to death with a hammer by one of his own clerics. I'm just this little this this priest like, oh no, oh no. It's not working fast enough, clubs him to death with a hammer. And then that priest who did it immediately fell down dead as well when he was discovered. Like he just had like a, a fright heart attack. I just murdered the Pope, falls down dead. Although there is another story in the Annals of Fulda that the murderer was later murdered and his body was pulled through the church, staining the floor with blood. But we're going to cover this story another time because it makes more sense in the chronology in a different event. But was he maybe drugged by a stag? No, no, he was Through not. the church? No. Just circling nope. the church? <laughs> nope, just, I have murdered the Pope and I am falling down dead. I have exactly fallen down happens. dead from guilt. So this makes John the first pope to actually be assassinated. Ponta fact. So since martyrdom and execution is entirely different, this is really our first assassination. And this is also, by the way, excluding Pope John VII's death when he was alleged to have been beaten to death after being found in a bed with another man's wife. Because we didn't believe that at the time. We know that that is the death of another pope. And so since this John is repeatedly called the first murdered Pope, history didn't believe that death either. Which, by the way, you know, anybody who's listening and wants an amusing perusal sometime, there is a Wikipedia page just called List of Popes That Died Violently. It's worth checking out sometime. It's just a weird, weird wiki page. Wiki has weird pages sometimes. They're meant to be there to, like, suck you in and make you lose track. Liminal spaces. This one will definitely do that. But back to the murder. Because obviously this raises a lot of questions that you just asked. Why was he murdered? Why did his clerics turn against him? Who is responsible for this? Jerry? We don't know for sure, but there are a couple of reasons that have been suggested. One of the most common explanations suggests that the cleric who did the killing was a relative of John's and that he wanted him dead so that he could inherit certain properties. But obviously, like you just said, we can't help but going back to thinking about Formosus, Jerry, and his accomplices, who had repeatedly tried to undermine and get rid of John, tried to have him killed by Saracen pirates, and then ended up deposed and excommunicated. Could this be a revenge killing? Or a way to get him out of office so that these depositions could be undone? do know that Formosus is restored by John's successor. So if they're involved in the murder for this reason, it checks out as motive. Historian Wendy J. Reardon definitely thinks that Formosus and his friends were behind the murder and that they had bribed a family member of John's to actually carry out the poisoning and subsequent hammering. So both, really. Now, other historians suggest that it could have been clerics that were unhappy with any part of John's policies. Like, it could have been due to who John supported for Holy Roman Emperor among the Carolingians. It could have been 
John's rapprochement with the Byzantines and recognizing Photius as patriarch. It could have been someone who perceived him as failing in his defense against the Muslims, even though he was doing literally everything. Whatever the reason, John was buried in the portico of St. Peter's in an ancient sarcophagus, which was very much all the rage at the time. A lot of Carolingian kings and nobles are also buried in ancient basins or sarcophagi, so this is like very much the on-trend burial at the time. His body and tomb are thought to have been destroyed in the renovation for New St. Peter's. However, there is a body in an ancient sarcophagus uncovered at the Church of Santa Saba that might have been this John if it had been moved, which was rumored to have happened in about 1375. However, there is also record of Pope John XVII also being buried at Santa Saba, so it's more likely him, but it could be this John. The epitaph attributed to him reads, The body of Bishop John VIII rests beneath the cold cover of marble tomb. As he is adorned by his lofty acts and merits, he shone by his blessed morals. A guardian of judgment, he remained a lover of piety, teaching many words to different kinds of doctrine. He often drove the weeds out of Christ's field and sowed many seeds throughout the world, rejoicing. Speaking learnedly, prudent with his words, and skilled with his tongue, he showed himself clever in all things. And now may he behold the hosts of heaven above the stars. That's nice. So that is Pope John VIII, our Pope Madhook. It's time to rate him. Or at least try to. Yeah, it's going to be a tough one. Papatum infallium. So John is considered generally to be an able pope who made the most of a papacy that was threatened from without and within. And after John's papacy, we are going to see a bit of a downhill trend where the papacy is more subject than ever to the interference of Roman nobility. So that's something he's definitely trying to put a stop to. He ends the Photian schism, but by recognizing Photius, he did make a decision that is could be seen as undermining his predecessors, and some people see it as weak and too compromising. But practically, we can understand why, right? He has much bigger problems to worry about, so he's looking to create as much unity as possible. And although we're going to credit this more in Secular Eye Impactum, the fact that the Pope is now choosing the Emperor, making the Emperor's title a sort of will of God moment, He certainly and absolutely has increased the power and influence of the papacy. The situation with Methodius is a bit of a wash, right? He stands up for the bishop and defends the right of the apostolic see, but then he prohibits and then undoes his own prohibition on the Slavonic liturgy. Hard to give him points for that. So I'm leaning towards like a seven or eight. Yeah, it's got to be somewhere kind of high because he is he is working quite hard. And this this the Pope choosing the emperor is is both important for Papatum and Valium and Seculari Impactum. So there's that. Do you want to go seven or do you want to go eight? Let's go seven. I think that's fair. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to see if I can justify that extra point to him. I mean, he is a very able Pope, and I think a seven is fair. So he will get a 14 for Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. 
So there is a little bit to discuss here because Gregorovius, famous historian, calls John, quote, revengeful to an almost unequaled degree. He also says, some, however, on what would seem to be insufficient grounds, regard him as cruel, passionate, worldly-minded, and inconstant. So they don't exactly, he doesn't provide an explanation for why he feels that way. Aside from maybe this is, he is aware of who's posing a threat to him and he's doing what he can to cut them out of papal race, right? He's excommunicating Formosus. He's, he's aware of who's against him and he's being harsh with them. I don't know if it's worth a point though. Unless we want to give him a point for being, you know, awful to the, the Saracens. I don't know. Maybe just one total. Just because yeah. he's a little. Maybe, maybe if Gregorovius had given us more examples, we could have given him more points here. But a one because he does get called revengeful, at least. One seems fair. Seculari impactum. Here, he absolutely needs to score well, right? He went above and beyond for the protection of Rome, fortified the defenses, acted as general. We credited Gregory exceptionally high for the same stuff. He put together a papal fleet that successfully fought back invasions. He brought together an alliance of the southern Italian princes against the Saracens, mildly successful. He never stopped trying. He thought out every source of defense. He tried to make a relationship with anyone who would help him, even when disappointed by literally every secular authority. He's repelling incursions right up till he dies. And again, I'm going to quote from Gregorovius, the activity which the priest displayed put kings to shame and covered his memory with military renown. A man as such the Pope well deserved to govern Rome. When we read the Pope's letters, we are forced to admire his diplomatic skill. He possessed a capacity for political finesse as such by few Popes has ever shared. And again, choosing the emperor, he crowns two emperors during his papacy. He denies other secular powerful leaders from being emperor. So there is a lot of good here. Yeah, there is. I So I think I'm going to go with like a seven again. Okay, I'm going to give him a nine then. All right. Because I think it needs to be high because this is a big moment. So he will get, a, and I think that works out. He gets a 16 for secular eye impact. Fossium Sanctus. So, are you ready to see our Pope Madhook? Oh, absolutely. He does definitely have some piratiness about him. Oh, he's pissed. He is our angriest looking Pope to date, maybe? He is really mad. Look at him. Wow. All of his images are... Oh, that one. Except for that one, which definitely... Uh, I'll show you after. But most of his images are of a very pissed off looking man. So I think that's fair. I think it's very appropriate. I could definitely see him as a pirate king. Wow. Um, he, yeah, he's uh, eight. I got an eight for him. Yeah, it's, I think it's real good. So I think I will, I think I'm going to give him a nine again because I really like it. So he got a 17 and when scored out, that gives him a 4.25. So real quick, let's have a look at the rest of this man. Here he is. Man, pissed off again? Yeah, no, he's pissed. Here's him being mad again. Still pissed. 
And then there's this. This is a this is a little bit of paleography for you. It's his uh, signature on a papal bull. Not something we can write on, but cool. And then I have to show you this final image of him, not pissed, but absolutely feeling his own oats. Oh. Oh wow. <laughs> wow, he's feeling himself. That is him right after he's made that anti-Saracen alliance, and he's feeling good about it. So, Tempus Pontificus. December 14th, 872 to December 16th, 882. Ten years and two days. A score of 2.5. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. He is not a saint. Although I feel like he would have been a good candidate for a saint. Dang. So that brings us to his total score, which is... Very impressive. It is a 37.75, scoring higher than Hadrian II, not too far behind Nicholas, putting him in 18th place overall. And I think that's fair. And that brings us to our final question that I have to ask you, which is, do you think he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough and piratey enough for a papal book? Oh, gosh, it's real close, honestly. Um, It does feel really close. I feel like he almost just got there, but didn't quite make it. Yeah, I feel like if he had had one break in his life, one break, one thing that actually worked out with someone showed up with soldiers, we could have probably given it to him, which feels unfair. It really does. It feels unfair because he tried so hard for that but just everything was just slightly out of grasp the alliance worked only for a little bit the the emperors he's like yes this is gonna work and it doesn't so i think his papal bull is gonna be much the same but it is it is a tough no sorry pope Madhook. so that brings us to the end of our episode but before we do that we have a couple patrons to absolve of their temporal sins so we'd like to say thank you to Sarah G, Christian Denhart, Anne Solard, and Justin Schofstel. Ego te absolvo. And this is a long episode, so maybe we're going to get a Pope Watch on our next one. We just couldn't fit it into this one. And we can say thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.